I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at the growing rivalry between Iran and Israel, which comes at a time when Iranian influence in Syria is on the increase and the Trump administration is publicly considering whether to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Joining me to discuss all this is Andrew England, who's our Middle East news editor, and on the line from Jerusalem, our correspondent there, Mehul Srivastava. Andrew, first of all, it does feel like there's an increase in tensions. I guess the most obvious recent incident was when the Israelis bombed an Iranian base inside Syria. Yeah, I think um, tensions have been growing for a while. I mean, from the Israeli perspective, Syria is on their border. It's on the northern border next to the Golan Heights. Iran has intervened in the Syrian conflict, sent Quds Force troops there. It's supporting foreign Shia militias in Syria, including Hezbollah, the Lebanese militant movement with which uh, Israel fought a month-long war in 2006. Now, the Israeli concern is that Iran and Hezbollah are exploiting the conflict to build military presence bases in southern Syria close to its border, potentially opening up a new front against Syria. And it's also concerned that Iran is using the conflict to supply Hezbollah more sophisticated long-range missiles and that Hezbollah is building actual manufacturing bases in southern Syria where it can build these kind of missiles. So what we've seen, they've, Israelis have not intervened directly in the civil war, but they've made scores of airstrikes against mainly, I would say, Hezbollah, arms caches, depots, this kind of thing. Now, the incident you talked about was earlier this month when jets attacked the T4 base in Homs province of Syria. Now, Israel neither confirmed or denied that it made the strike, but Russia, which supports the Syrian regime and Iran, both accused Israel of carrying out the strike. And like you say, it killed seven Iranians. Now, if that is true, if it was an Israeli strike and seven Iranian troops were killed, you know, it was the biggest attack by Israel on Iranian troops in years. It was unprecedented. You know, most of the attacks, uh, airstrikes, Israeli airstrikes that we know about were targeting weapons catches. So this showed a clear escalation and Israeli concerns that what they see as the Iranian encroachment of Hezbollah on their border is becoming serious. So Mehul, I mean, you're in Israel. The Israelis, and particularly their Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who have been issuing dark warnings about Iran for you know more than a decade. But what's the mood now? Is there a sense that with this growing Iranian influence in Syria, in Lebanon, right up against Israel's borders, that a conflict is looming? The right-wing government here would like to remind people that there is an immediate possibility of a conflict with Iran. But of course, they couch it in a very uh, careful way, which is that they're working in Israel's protection, they would attack Iran if they felt there was an attack imminent, and that we should prepare ourselves here in Israel for a retaliatory attack from Iran for the airstrike that Andrew was just talking about. But as you said, this is a, a warning that's been handed out over a year, for some based on intelligence, some based for domestic politics reasons for quite a long time. But you're right, the temperature seems particularly high right now. There was an incident preceding that when in February at some point a drone 
that was of Iranian origin crossed over into Israeli airspace for just about 30 seconds before a couple of Apache helicopters shot it down. We were told two weeks ago that that drone was packed with explosives and may have been sent to attack perhaps a kibbutz or something else that was along that border. But there is a general sense that that border and that northern neighborhood that they now have with Iran, Iran's proxy, Hezbollah, and the support of Russia is a very contentious issue that's coming to a head sometime soon. Taking a couple of steps backwards then, Andrew, I mean, not just the Israelis, also the Gulf Arabs, in particular the Saudis, have been very concerned for some time about what they see as the growing power of Iran in the Middle East. Where are we on that? Well, certainly, if you look at what's been happening in Iraq, what's been happening in Syria, you could say that the Iranian presence on the ground has been strengthened. In 2014, when ISIS first swept across Iraq, seizing Mosul in the north, Ramadi, Fallujah, the Iraqis turned to their allies and said, please, we need help. ISIS is on its way to Baghdad. The US was slow to respond. The Iranians came straight in, helped stem the advance of ISIS, and there are Shia militias were set up to fight ISIS in Iraq, and a lot of them are Iranian-backed. You've got a similar situation in Syria, where Iran has been one of the key supporters of President Bashar al-Assad in the seven-year conflict there, and also supporting foreign Shia militias. So through these conflicts, we can see that Iran's influence has grown. And the concern is from the US and Israel that Iran wants to exploit these conflicts and its influence on the ground to create a land corridor, basically from Iran, through Iraq, through Syria, and down to Israel. And so that would enable them, in theory, to you know supply arms to Hezbollah, to their proxies, and, you know, have a new potential, a new front on the Israeli border. And the key concern is that the conflicts have created this instability, created vacuums, and Iran has been able to take advantage of that through its own intervention and those of Shia militias, Shia proxies in the region. Particularly from the Saudi perspective, you've got the Yemen conflict, which is on the doorstep of Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Arabia has intervened to support the exiled government to fight Houthi rebels, which, again, the Saudis and the Americans accuse Iran of support. An army. Iran will say that it's in Syria to protect the legitimate government and the holy Shia shrines. It doesn't acknowledge supporting the Houthis militarily, but from the Gulf Arabs perspective, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, it's supporting an insurgency group on their doorstep. And this is the concern. And of course, part of the international picture, Mehul, is that the Trump administration has been threatening ever since it came in to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. And uh, I think Mr. Trump has to make a decision on that in the next few weeks. Presumably, Israel would be pleased if that happened. That's something that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been uh, advising, if not demanding, that the Americans do right away, because they have always believed that Iran is cheating on the deal, and the deal doesn't do enough to stop them from enriching uh, the kind of material that they need for a bomb. Just uh, yesterday, Mr. Netanyahu repeated his assertion that he will not allow any country hostile to Israel to produce and possess a nuclear bomb. But I think that at this moment in time, uh, he perhaps doesn't have the ear of the president as much as he would hope on this one. And there's, of course, this meeting between uh, the French president and Mr. Trump that may yield a slightly different result than Mr. Netanyahu wants. Yes, Andrew, how do you read that? Do you think that it's going to be all warnings but no actual delivery, as it has been with Trump in the past, where he's kind of seemed to be on the brink of pulling the plug on the Iran nuclear deal and then at the last moment has thought better of it? 
I think nobody actually knows. I mean, since he made the warning, he basically told the Europeans who are signatories to the deal, either fix the deal or we nix it. Um, We've had John Bolton, who's a known hawk on Iran, hates the nuclear deal, come in as National Security Advisor. Mike Pompeo is being nominated to replace Tillerson, who was seen as a steadier voice in the White House as Secretary of State. So the dynamics in the administration are changing. More hawks are coming in. But, you know, Trump has shown himself to be unpredictable. I think um, Iran has always insisted its nuclear program was only for civilian peaceful purposes. They've been seen to comply with the uh, nuclear accord since it was signed in 2015. The European signatories, that's France, the UK and Germany, are desperate to keep the accord alive. They'd see it as a there is no plan B. This was an agreement which people spent years negotiating to deal with a brewing crisis, which could have led to conflict. And their concern is if the deal is scrapped or collapsed, it will only create more instability. It will strengthen hardliners in Tehran. They'll use their proxies in the region to, if you like, retaliate. And then, you know, there's always the danger of an arms race in, in, in the Middle East. You've got the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which seems to be growing. You've got the Israeli factor. So I think, you know, May is the deadline. Everybody are watching to see which way Trump goes. Does he not waive the sanctions, which would then put Iran under a huge pressure, possibly force them, you know, they would take the decision to withdraw? Um, Can the Europeans dissuade Trump? Can they convince the um, Iranians to try and keep the deal alive, even if the US pulls out? I just don't think we know at this stage. So, Andrew, to round it off and sort of cut into the chase, if you like, how likely do you think there actually is going to be a war? Because in a way, Israel has had a long period of domestic peace, relative control over the terrorism threat, and also not fought a major war, if you count out the conflicts with Gaza, where they're you know completely in control, effectively. They haven't had this for a long time. Is Benjamin Netanyahu really willing to fight a war with, with a major power like Iran? Or, or is it even the situation that he can control? I actually don't think, and analysts don't seem to think, that any party wants a war right now. So that's Israel, that's Iran, which has been pretty quiet and, and not reacted too belligerently to the most recent alleged Israeli strike on the T4 base, and Hezbollah. I mean, Israel and Hezbollah both remember the damage that was done in 2006. Israel suffered a bloody nose. Huge amount of damage was done across Lebanon by Israeli bombs. And Iran, I think, whilst it likes to express its power and its influence, doesn't want to get involved in a conflict. The danger is that you get an escalation because you've got forces so close to each other now, particularly in Syria, that the fear is that you've got Hezbollah in southern Syria, you've got Iranian forces in the area, that you get an escalation. And then it gets out of hand. And that's always the risk. And that's always the danger when you have such a tense environment and so many armed forces in the same region. And I think this is the real issue for Syria now, you know, as the civil war itself is ebbing, you know, you've got this dynamic where foreign powers and their proxies are pushing for territory, looking to control territory. And it's what's going to fill that vacuum or that area in southern Syria on the Israeli border and how that plays out. Because there are red lines for Israel. Israel does not want to see Iranian Hezbollah forces right on their doorstep. Okay, well, with that thought, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much indeed to Andrew England here in the studio, to Mehul Trivastava in Jerusalem. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.